0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Yes, I, ideally, um, you do want to have really high quality content. I am a huge fan of that. Um, however, I, you know, the asterisk that I'll put on it is that there are a lot of people who who hesitate to ever create something or who hesitate to ever put anything out there because they often have this internal dialogue with themselves where they say, well, I don't know if my stuff is better than other people's. I mean, in fact, it's probably not. So I don't want to contribute to the noise. So I'll just I'll just do nothing. I'll just stay quiet. And I don't I don't think that's the right answer either, because you, you actually don't get good until you start doing it. That's that's the ironic thing. Right. For almost everybody, once you start, it, you know, the beginning is kind of rubbish. Like I look back at the stuff that I posted 2009, 2010. Most of it's not that good. I look at it now and I'm just kind of like, Egh. you know, like it's not horrible. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, like I can I can spell the grammar's fine. You know, the points are valid. Uh, you know, it's not it's not terrible, but it's also not that smart. It's not that evolved. Seven years later, I look at it and I'm like, oh, this is kind of average. But it was it was the best I could do at the time. And I would never have gotten better if I didn't do that. And so I think to a certain extent, it does involve a leap of faith of just, you know, being like, you know what? It's, it's good enough. <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna do it. And, uh, and, and being willing to, uh, to take those steps.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
4: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Dory, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: I am so happy to be back here. It is. It has been too long. So uh, let's uh, let's pick up where we left off, Srini. I love yeah, it.
2: it. I mean, it's been four years since we've had you here. You've had multiple books come out, and uh, I had you know the, the fortunate pleasure of, of getting to read through your most recent one. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, where did you grow up, and what impacted where you grew up, end up having on the direction that your life and your career has taken.
1: I grew up in Pinehurst, North Carolina, which is a very small town uh, south of the Triangle. And uh, it it is known as the golf capital of the world, although uh, some some might claim that is not, not entirely true now because we used to have the World Golf Hall of Fame. And when I was a teenager, that was uh, – brutally stripped from us and taken to some city in Florida instead. Uh, but uh, but anyway, it is, it is a renowned golf resort, which makes for a really interesting place to grow up because it was me and like a pack of retirees. Uh, so the short version is it motivated me very highly to get out of there as rapidly as possible.
2: Mm hmm. So can I ask you, I mean, one thing that I know you've talked openly about is um, being gay. And I'm curious, like what that experience is like growing up and also coming from such a small town environment, what impact that has had?
1: Yeah, I well, The the first thing is that it makes me bitterly jealous of millennials because I'm like, why couldn't I have grown up with the Internet? I would have I would have freaking loved to have the Internet. But uh, but we didn't. Um, I did not uh, I did not have access to the Internet until I was a junior in college. And even then, you know, in the early days, it was it was not that great. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, but yeah, it it was uh, it was definitely a little alienating for me because I just felt like on so many levels, um, that it was not the place for me. Um, you know, obviously, uh, it takes a while for you to figure out you're gay. Um, although I, I did pretty early, I, I came out to myself when I was 13 and that became a real driver for me and wanting to, to get out and go to a, to a bigger place, uh, where more things were going on. But, uh, but even, even just from the beginning, it was it just culturally, it felt it felt so small, and the only thing we had was. Was like primetime TV, which was you know not not even that much of a window. But I remember uh, I was a huge consumer of media growing up and just watching the shows, the TV shows about you know Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or Boston, and and just seeing you know that that was my way. Um, even if they were you know sometimes silly, frothy confections, because we were not really in the in the glory age of of TV like we are now. Um, it was a way of just seeing that there was there was a bigger world. There was a there was a world where exciting things were happening. And I really wanted to, to get access to that. Um, I but yeah, in terms of my sexuality, I had been out to myself for over a year before I literally met any other gay people. Um, so, you know, which I, I think is kind of kind of interesting a lot of people you know come out because maybe they met someone and they fell for them or you know maybe they whatever or in a discussion group online or or something like that. And and they meet people and they kind of help them figure it out. But in a lot of ways, I had to figure it out on my own. And the only way to do that was uh, subscribing to magazines. It was really old school. I was, you know, subscribed to news magazines like The Advocate or, um, you know, there was Out Magazine. So I would read those. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it also... Showed me. I, I think this is true for every high schooler uh, in general, but but for me, it made it much more salient. Um, but but the few, the handful of openly gay role models that were out there at the time, um, you know, Katie Lang or the Indigo Girls or things like that, they were they were really like the only people that you could kind of look to, and it just made me appreciate them so much. It made me really understand the. The meaning and the importance of being being visible for other people, and I, I think that more people, just you know, not necessarily mu- famous musicians or whatever, but just more people in regular life, need to really soak it in that just by dint of doing what they do and being who they are other people are watching. And you might be a kind of, you know, micro micro celebrity to, uh, to, to other people, even if it's just like kids in your life or something like that. And for them to see that you're doing something really helps enlarge their vision of what's possible. And I, I think that if more of us were aware of that, there's a a real power in it that maybe sometimes if we feel like, you know, maybe we're not accomplishing all that we want to, or we're comparing ourselves to other people, it's like, you know, you're, you're doing your part.
2: Mm -hmm. Can I ask you about the experience of coming out to your parents and what that
1: was Yeah. Yeah. I came out to my mother pretty, Pretty early on, pretty soon after I realized I was gay, because I, I I essentially knew that I needed to. It was it was a strategically mandatory activity because I the only way that I was going to be able to get information like you know my the magazines or whatever, um, you know, like you know the Advocate was basically like a Newsweek about gay issues, essentially. Um, but but the only way that I'd be able to get that because, uh, you know, we were in a small town, um, the, you know, we didn't even have mail delivered to us. There was like a, there was a central post office. And so my mom would get the mail at the post office. And so if I was going to be like subscribing to some magazine, she was, of course, going to be like, what's this? Uh, so I knew that I would have to explain things and get her buy-in. So I, I came out to her and... I, you know, it was late one night uh, she had been nice enough to take me to a to a concert and it was uh, it was this concert up in the triangle um, by a band that I really liked and the lead singer was gay and so I felt kind of I guess emboldened by that and so after the show I told her and she, you know she she did I think a really good job um, she she did you know what the sort of standard thing that the parents are supposed to do which is that you know I love you no matter what you know which was really great and really sweet. Um, she did, She, you know, she did sort of say the, the, you know, the second part, which is, again, a pretty common mom thing, which is, you know, I just worry about you. I worry that you'll be discriminated against and, you know, all these things. And I'm like, well, you know, all right, well, you gotta, <laughs> we just have to deal with that. Uh, if that if that is, in fact, the case. But um, I think the big thing for us was the big moment, at least for me, was, maybe a year after that, I had managed to, uh, get my first girlfriend and I was, you know, just head over heels for my first girlfriend. And we, my mom, the girlfriend and me went out for some afternoon outing. And anyway, at, you know, at this, uh, place that we were at, my girlfriend and I were holding hands. And so then afterwards, after we had dropped her off, my mom, you know, says to me when we're in private, she's like, did you, you know, why were you holding hands? Did you really have to do that? You know, do you have to be so visible? You know, why are, why are you flaunting your sexuality? You know, the magic words. And uh, and I think partly emboldened by the fact that I was, <laughs> at that point, I was 14, <laughs> like right in the throes of my adolescent rebellion. Um, so the, I think there was that but but also i'm actually very proud of myself in retrospect i just was not having it you know some people get kind of cowed by their families which I, I think is unfortunate because um you know you, you you just you can't you can't let people get away with these double standards and so I di- i didn't i was just like that is homophobic and you need to adjust your attitude <laughs> if you know if if guys and girls can hold hands, you know, then, then I should be able to hold hands with my girlfriend. We're not doing anything different. Uh, and you, you know, the, the train has left the station and you need to get on the train essentially is, is kind of the message that I conveyed. And I think she was so taken aback by that. Uh, but I was really firm about it. And, uh, and to her, to her credit, you know, mama, mama did get with the program and, you know, she's really just been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful ally and, you know, big, a big supporter of mine in all areas, uh, since then. And, um, yeah, I, I feel, I feel very fortunate because some people of course have really difficult situations with their family. I just officiated a wedding for the first time this year. And I, it was for a friend of mine and her, uh, female partner. And it was so sad, you know, because the, the sister of, um, of her partner didn't come to the wedding sister and her family just didn't show up uh because she didn't agree with gay marriage and you know it takes a really special day and it it makes it pretty hurtful um you know her parents were there but but the sister boycotted uh so i I feel very lucky that uh that you know i was greeted with good support Mm -hmm.
2: what impacts both positive and negative do you think that your sexuality has had on your career
1: You know, I think that if I, of course, you know, there's, uh, there's not really AB testing exactly. So, uh, so it's hard to know for sure. But, but if I were, if I were speculating, I would say that, um, in the, in the minus category, again, if I had to guess, I don't have, I don't have, uh, evidence of this, but, I would suspect that particularly for something like – something visible, like maybe a speaking engagement or something like that, Mm -hmm. I think that it is possible that some people who – you know, maybe selecting speakers or something like that might, there might be a tendency for them to think, "Eh, I don't know, you know, if, you know, like, like, maybe they're not homophobic, but they might worry that other people in the audience, you know, might not necessarily want to be hearing from some like kind of visibly gay person up on stage. And so, it it would not surprise me if maybe they figured oh it'll just be safer quote unquote to uh to pick somebody that um that you know doesn't sort of come across as gay right. um on the but you know maybe that's not true i don't know uh but but it it would not necessarily surprise me um on the plus side and again i think it's it's interesting um the way sexuality and gender breakdown, I'm, you know, people, of course, are listening on a podcast, so they maybe don't have any idea what I look like. But I'm, you know, I'm a little bit more kind of, you know, masculine presenting, I wear sort of, you know, men's men's suits and things like that. And so uh, something that is a little bit more about gender than about sexuality, but of course, they do uh, very tightly tie together, is that, you know, you hear all all the time, obviously, anyone who sort of pays attention to feminism or women's issues or things like that, hears that it is super common for women to feel in in professional settings that they are not listened to, uh, that, you know, it's very common to hear situations where, you know, maybe there's women in a a meeting or something like that, and they'll say something, and then nobody listens. And then, like, three minutes later, a guy says it, and everyone's like, oh, that's so brilliant. (laughs) You know, all these, these kinds of small uh, negations. Um, Of course, as we're having this conversation, we're we're in the throes of this national paroxysm about sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And so we're hearing how common it is, unfortunately, across a spectrum of industries that women uh, have been just faced with a lot of things about, you know, whether it's being propositioned by their boss or having inappropriate sexualized comments in the workplace or things like that, you know, real, real burdens, real um, just difficult things to deal with that are a, a, a genuine distraction from the work at hand, and you know, God bless them. You know, these women have have managed to perform really well in spite of a lot of. That a lot of that adversity, uh, but one benefit that I can say to being a you know perhaps more more masculine presenting person uh, is that I I've, I've never felt not taken seriously. Um, I, I, I really haven't. I feel like when I uh, and and I and I understand that's a privilege and, and I feel very lucky uh, about that. And I, it saddens me that not everybody experiences that. But you know if I'm in a meeting and I say something if I'm you know doing whatever. I feel like people listen and it I I think that that may be because in our culture uh, it's maybe not so much about uh, men or women I think it's maybe a little bit more about masculinity and femininity and I think that femininity you know no matter who's manifesting it whether it's a a guy or a girl is kind of devalued in our culture and so um you know, I, I'm in some ways, in some weird ways, uh, reaping the benefit of that, where I, I I do feel like people treat me as competent, Where people treat me as uh, somebody who is effective. And, uh, and so they listen. And also, fortunately, I have not been uh, sexually harassed. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's because I'm just uh, not necessarily what the, what the, sexual predators are looking for, or if they're worried that I would punch them, uh, maybe both. <laughs>
2: wow. um, walk me through uh, the earlier sort of trajectory of your career and how that has led you to doing uh, what you're doing today.
1: Well, you know, I thought there were, there were a lot of things that I thought I would do. And uh, kind of the story of my 20s was that none of them ever worked out. <laughs> But um, there's a great a great quote by Winston Churchill that um, that that says that uh, (laughs) I'm going to butcher it a little bit. But it's uh, it's 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 basically that, like, you know, the way to succeed is to is to is to jump from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And uh, I I think that that was that was kind of me for uh, for a while in my 20s. I originally thought that I was going to be an academic. That was that was what I wanted to do. I um, had always done really well in school, and I loved uh, I, I loved college. You know, especially coming from this little town in North Carolina. Um, you know, I I my sort of escape strategy was I had managed to go to college early. I had actually left high school after ninth grade, and I finagled my way into a program where I got to enter college. And so, you know, 14 to 18 was when I was in college. And I just thought it was magical. I thought it was so great. You know, I loved the courses. I loved learning. I loved the professors. I admired them so much. And I just, I really wanted to do that. And so I thought I was going to go into academia. And because I had performed well in school, I thought like, oh, you know, great, this is kind of a shoe in Uh, But it wasn't. (laughs) turns out I I did not, after getting my master's degree, I did not get into any of the doctoral programs that I applied to. So it was just this like crazy rude awakening. I just hadn't even considered that possibility. Um, So I had to kind of fumble around for a while to figure out what I was going to do. And ultimately, I became a reporter, um, which I I was actually kind of proud of myself because I thought like, oh, well, this is not, you know, good job, Dory. This is not a bad second option. You know, this is this is a good job where it's like, you know, you get to read, you get to write, you get to have intellectual discourse. Like I felt I felt pretty, pretty solid about that. And so I probably would have kept doing that, except I entered it, you know, this like terrible time in the history of newspapers and uh, I ended up getting laid off. And uh, ironically, it was literally the day before September 11th, 2001, I got laid off on September 10th. And so it was just like the worst time ever to get laid off and be jobless. Um, But could not get another newspaper job. So that career went out the window for me. Uh, I then went to work. I had been a political reporter. So the thing that I could get a job doing was being a political campaign spokesperson. So I ended up doing that for a couple of pretty high profile races. One was a governor's race. Another was a uh, presidential race. And then both of my candidates lost. And I'm just like, give me a fucking break here. <laughs> but uh, but the next the next thing that, that I did actually succeeded in giving me clarity. Um, This was the one job that I didn't uh, end up ignominiously leaving. Uh, I was an executive director for a bicycling advocacy nonprofit, uh, which, you know, sounds a little random, but – you know, I was I was all about random. I'm like, hey, why not? You know, it was it actually was pretty cool because it's uh, it touched on a lot of things. You get to know the public health people, you get to know the environmental people, you get to know the transportation people, uh, the urban planning people. It was uh, it had a lot of cool intersections that I liked, but um, but really what I learned in running this nonprofit was, I discovered, I kind of had this revelation. I'm like, oh, it's a business. And then shortly after I had revelation number two, which was oh, I could open my own business. And I realized it would be a lot less stressful to run my own business because I was just terrified. This nonprofit was so small and so like financially precarious. And we had three employees and I just, I worried about my staff. It was so stressful to me having to raise money, which I pretty much had to do single-handedly because uh, the board was not that involved in it, unfortunately. And it was... Uh, it just it just seemed like oh I could I could work for myself and so that is what I started doing in 2006 and um, I've been self employed. Since then, but that that was kind of the journey to get there.
2: Hmm. You know, the period working as a presidential campaign spokesperson, like that, the you know, when I was looking through your bio and and doing some research for this, that caught my attention. I'm curious, what did you learn during that time about communication, um, human behavior, and persuasion that you have applied to your work going forward?
1: Yeah, it was it was an interesting time um, doing doing press. Uh, on the two thousand and four presidential cycle, because certain certain things were in play. Um, you know, we were, of course well well into the twenty four hour news cycle um, with cable news and and all of that. The internet was uh, was definitely a factor. I was working for Howard Dean, and his campaign, in fact was, known uh, at the time and is now sort of regarded by historians as being the first campaign to really fully harness the power of the internet um and did a lot of very innovative things we were the first presidential cam- campaign that had a blog for instance uh we were the first campaign to really um leverage meetup so there were a lot of interesting innovations that were happening at that time um but uh but also things were very different uh the two thousand four cycle Facebook was just being birthed. It was you know just a little tiny inchoate thing at Harvard, so it was not a factor at all. Twitter hadn't been invented YouTube hadn't been invented. All these things that we think of as being just absolutely essential to our fabric of life now um just weren't even around so it was it was kind of the last campaign before. Before we cross that precipice, but what I learned from it, um, it was it was interesting. I think that um, even without social media, um, with with the blog and with the approach that we took, of course, there's a lot of managing. Of perceptions. I mean, that's kind of the job of of a press person. But there's there's been a change because you really very, very tightly controlled the brand before that. Um, I mean, it was just everything was was on lockdown, you know, and I think the 2004 election was it was it was kind of the, the place where there was a little bit of a tipping point toward what I will call more authentic, uh, communication, you know, and it, we were, we were still pretty, pretty buttoned up in terms of how we handled things, but, um, but it was just starting to, to open up where, what you came to realize was that your job was no, not so much to control and standardize and sanitize the, the message as it was to give people a way to see the candidate to, you know, to, as, as best you could to to let them um, at least feel like they're getting close to the candidate. And so we, we tried to come up with ways to do that. And especially uh, I think what the Dean campaign was was great at, you know, with things like the meetup and whatever was fomenting real, genuine grassroots excitement and trying to turn a, a campaign into a movement uh, and, you know. Ultimately, of course, it wasn't successful, but there were there were certainly moments and there were certainly glimmers of, of what was possible.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
4: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary
3: hey it's sharon and here's where it gets interesting raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just two dollars a manicure
4: At Greenlight. dot com slash acast. Mm-hmm.
2: So, how do you get from there to where you are today? Um, you know, I know you mentioned starting a business, and you know, how do, how do we get to the point of entrepreneurial you? And, and what was really the motivation to to start this to to write this book in particular?
1: So, when I first started my business in two thousand and six, I. I had planned for about a year to do it. Um, I had wanted to lay the groundwork uh, as strategically as I knew how, um, which, you know, wasn't very. I didn't really know that many people who were entrepreneurs at the time. So I was just kind of making shit up. But uh, but what I did do was I read a ton of books from the library. Um, I mean, just like. Hundreds. Um, I, I was I was taking home stacks of books uh, and you know getting them all from like interlibrary loan and whatever over the course of a year. At the time, I had a long distance girlfriend, so I you know we didn't see each other but like once a month because she lived in California. So uh, so I, I had plenty of time to be reading and, and studying. So I was doing that. I was taking uh, courses. You know, I signed up for these like adult ed courses and stuff in various aspects of uh, you know business and so I was trying to educate myself about it. But, uh, but when I actually did start my business, when I launched it for real, I just realized there were, there were a lot of pieces that I didn't know. You know, there's, you just discover these, these gaps that you hadn't maybe predicted. And a big one was how do you differentiate yourself? Um, I, I, I just didn't count on, on a having to be so precise in being able to, to somehow articulate, here's who I am. Here's, here's what I do. Here's the value that I offer. I mean, of course, you know, now years into it, it's kind of self-evident like, duh, of course you need to be able to do that. But at the time it just felt so weird. Like when you're an employee, you don't really have to do that. And so kind of learning how to do that was very strange and very awkward. And also just sort of seeing how other people were kind of skeptical of you a little bit. Like if you couldn't articulate well those things, they were a little bit like, uh okay you know and just just seeing the looks on their face where they're kind of like oh who is this you know sort of half-assed unsuccessful person (laughs) and and you know knowing like no hey i'm really talented i really could do these things but they don't know that so you have to find a way to get that across and then what's more above and beyond that once you cross that threshold It's like, well, um, how how are you going to really earn a living from it? Because at first, you know, the the challenges that I had, number one, I was not coming out of a corporate background. Um, I had never worked in the corporate world. So I didn't like have a bunch of colleagues back at, you know, some company that could hire me for lucrative assignments. Uh, I didn't have that at all. I had you know, I've been a journalist. I've been a nonprofit executive director. So the people, the people that I knew that could hire me, and God bless them, they did. Um, but it was usually like, well, they worked it at a small nonprofit, and so they could hire me for three hundred bucks or, or something like that. And it, it was, it was a very hard way to make money. And so I became very uh, thoughtful about that process. I, I really just tried to learn as much as I could, and, and frankly, I banged my head against a wall for a long time just trying to figure out, like, okay, how do you, how do you do this? How do you, how do you get it to be sustainable? How do you get, you know, okay, now once you're at sustainable, how do you get it from sustainable to lucrative, and, and how do you do that while, um, you know, you, you to a certain extent, you have to kind of ch- keep changing your business model because you can't necessarily keep working with the same clients as you started out with, and so. I became very thoughtful about those questions and trying to seek out answers to those questions because they were they were the questions that really faced me in a very vital way. Um, This was this was the future of my business. This was me being able to earn a living and bring in money. And um, and so I became almost obsessive about finding answers for them. And so I started writing my books as essentially a way to get those answers. Uh, So my book Stand Out was about basically how do you become a recognized expert in your field? What is what does it take to get to be known as a thought leader? Uh, So I interviewed a bunch of people, you know, 50 plus thought leaders that I admired to understand exactly how they got the ideas that they uh, that they became known for, like where did they come from? How did they get people to listen to them? Uh, how did they build a following around them, et cetera? And then my most recent book, Stand Out, kind of takes that one step further because I realized it's great to be a thought leader. It's great to be a recognized expert in your field. But especially in our current society, that actually doesn't Guarantee that you're going to make money from it. Um, you know, there's been plenty of articles, and we can all probably think of examples of people who are, you know, they might be like a big YouTube celebrity, they get millions of views, whatever, and they're not making any money. Mm. Literally, there was there was an article that came out um, by, uh, you know, by this this woman uh, who has a, a great, uh, I think her name is. Uh, maybe Gabby Gage. I'll have to look that up. But she she does a uh, a podcast actually about money and uh, super interesting. But but, you know, she did this article and it was, you know, talking about uh, people who literally are YouTube stars that moonlight at Starbucks. <laughs> and, you know, they'll they'll be working at Starbucks. And, you know, maybe every 20th customer is like a 13 year old, and it'll be like, Oh, my God, is it really you? And of course, you know, to all the older people, they're like, you know, who is this random barista, but they are celebrities in their world, but it's very hard to monetize it. And I think just for, for a lot of professionals, even, you know, non YouTube stars, really hard to figure out how to monetize. And so I wanted to, to try to, you know, crack that code as well and talk to talk to people who are knowledgeable and get real answers for myself and uh, and apply them and share them with other people.
2: It's interesting because I think that, you know, we we have sort of an interesting paradox at play here, right? Because it's easier than ever before to create stuff and put it out into the world. And I think it's harder than ever before uh, to get noticed. And, and, you know, I, I think about, you know, if we started what we're what we've built now, I don't think we would be where we are. Um, I think it would take a very different sort of approach. And, and I'm curious, one, you know, what, do you, what do you have to say to that? The fact that you know, the world is so much more noisy. In my mind, that just demands a much higher standard of product from people.
1: Yes, yes. I, I think you're right. By the way, just to correct myself, Gabby Gage is actually someone I know. Ha, sorry. Hi, Gabby Gage. Forget that. Gabby Dunn. That's okay. the woman that I'm talking about who has a, a podcast called bad with money. That's, uh, just to, just to close the loop on that. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but to your, to, to your question, your points, Sreeni. um, yeah, we are, we are drowning in content. We are overwhelmed with, uh, with options for content. And so, um, and so, yes, I, ideally, um, you do want to have really high quality content. I am a huge fan of that. Um, However, I, you know, the asterisk that I'll put on it is that there are a lot of people who who hesitate to ever create something or who hesitate to ever put anything out there because they often have this internal dialogue with themselves where they say, "Well, I don't know if my stuff is better than other people's. I mean, in fact, it's probably not. So, I don't want to contribute to the noise, so I'll just I'll just do nothing. I'll just stay quiet." And I don't I don't think that's the right answer either because you you actually don't get good until you start doing it. That's that's the ironic thing, right? For almost everybody once you start, it, you know, the beginning is kind of rubbish. Like I look back at the stuff that I posted 2009, 2010, most of it's not that good. I look at it now and I'm just kind of like, you know, like it's not horrible. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, like I can I can spell the grammar's fine. You know, the points are valid. uh You know, it's not it's not terrible, but it's also not that smart. It's not that evolved. Seven years later, I look at it and I'm like, oh, this is kind of average. Um, but it was it was the best I could do at the time. And I would never have gotten better if I didn't do that. And so I think to a certain extent, it does involve a leap of faith of just, you know, being like, you know what? it's good enough (laughs) i'm just i'm just gonna do it and uh and and being willing to uh to take those steps so i i think it's it's kind of a yes and right Mm -hmm. you do have to have great quality i mean that is what gets rewarded but but we have to be gentle enough with ourselves to realize um that that it's, it's only through experience that you are going to be able to develop your skills, whether, you know, whether we're talking about writing skills or podcasting and interviewing skills or, or for anything. Um, you, have to, you have to leap in and, and just be, be willing to do it with a dose of, of humility. Mm-hmm.
2: So, I mean, you've worked with people in, in multiple capacities, one-on-one in a coaching capacity. I mean, you've profiled a lot of people in this book and i'm curious in your experience what is it in your mind that differentiates people who get results from your work from the ones who don't
1: i i think in some in some ways it's uh it's an easy question to uh to answer because it 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 in so many ways is is literally just about the consistency and the will the willingness to do the work um meaning When you apply yourself with consistency, it is shocking how how common and in in fact so easy in some ways it is to get real results. So I'll give you two examples. One uh, who's somebody that I wrote about in Entrepreneurial You, and the other just from my own like executive coaching clients. So something that I found so shocking uh, when I was writing entrepreneurial you as I interviewed this guy, I think I think uh, you probably know him, James Clear. Mm-hmm. and uh, James is you know this this blogger. He's a big following, a big email list, et cetera. like four hundred thousand people. I mean, it's enormous. And when I asked him, like, how did you do that? how did you how did you build that? you know to be able to speak to so many people? He said, you know what? It was like one answer, consistency. He decided at the end of 2012 that he was going to blog twice a week without fail, no matter what he did, you know, no matter where he was in the world, no matter what he was doing, Mondays and Thursdays, he was going to be blogging. And he just put that out there and he was consistent about it. And and he said that is literally the only difference that when he looks at himself versus the trajectory of other people that he actually considers to be more talented he said it was it was the consistency that enabled me to build the following and uh, and to get it out there. I think that's so it's so simple. It's like it's so simple. You look at it and you're like, that can't be the answer. That's ridiculous. And yet, so few people do it. So that's example one. Example two is with my executive coaching that I do, and I've I've had you know a lot of people go through my program. Um, you know, some of them have gotten really amazing success in fact I got a I got a Christmas card from one of them just like a couple days ago and I have it here on my desk so this guy I love him so much uh, his name is Ron Carucci and he's uh, he's really just wonderful and uh, and very talented and so he was writing me this this Christmas card slash thank you note. And talking about our work together, and he said, um, you, "You certainly can't argue with the results." And he actually tallied them up for the year because he was curious. He said, uh, "Or you know, I guess it's the two two years that we've been working together." So he said, "52 posts in Forbes, 21 in Harvard Business Review, 61 podcasts, 10,000 Twitter followers, uh, and two TEDx talks, a Google talk, and infinite joy." That's what that's what he wrote, and and how did he do all this in 2 years well he he just he did it he did the work i mean it is a huge amount of effort to write you know what what was it 52 forbes posts and 21 harvard business review posts that's that's a huge amount of work over 2 years but he did it and he got them in there and his his results and his, you know, his, his brand and his ability to influence people has been so great since then. And then I look at, I look at other people and this is a real minority of people that I've, that I've worked with, but, but every once in a while, like you get, you get someone that just is too distractible, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like I had a guy that I was working with and, you know, he was paying a lot of money to, to work with me. And, you know, As part of our six month coaching package, we do um, every other week we do these phone calls. So like 12, you know, 12 phone calls. And, you know, then there's a strategy session, et cetera. But with these with these phone calls, it's um, it's kind of like our check in session, our homework, like it keeps people on track. You know, we're checking in, we're making sure they're doing things, answering questions, all of that, moving it forward. And he I think maybe four times over our six months, he canceled the call like at the last minute. Like sometimes it was the night before, sometimes it was the morning of, sometimes it was like right before because he just, he was, he was like too busy or, oh, you know, I was, I, I'm, I had to change my plane or, or something. And I mean, he's a good guy and he, you know, he did, he did good work and I think we were able to help him, but not as much as, as we would have because he was, he was just so all over the place. He wasn't, putting in the time or putting in the, the work in kind of this basic sense. And I think that that when you do kind of, put, as it were, like put your butt in the chair and, you know, write the posts or whatever, you know, sort of do the James Clear approach. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of shocking the amount of progress that you can make. Mm hmm.
2: So I mean, we've looked at this primarily from the perspective of entrepreneurship, but I mean, part of what really intrigued me about the, the work that you've done and, and this book in particular was I think this is a conversation that is much larger than being about entrepreneurship, but really about the future of work. And, you know, given that we're, you know, sitting on sort of another precipice of change, kind of like social media in 2004, you know, with artificial intelligence and, and automation and, and, you know, the end, you know, for the first time in probably the history of, of you know the world, um, the elimination of white collar jobs. What you know, based on sort of what you've seen and you've experienced, do you think the future of work is going to look like?
1: yeah i I certainly think that there there's going to be much more of a a continued push toward freelancing and you know contract employee contract employees. Uh, part of that is that, um, is that people like it, you know having having flexibility in your schedule, being able to work from home, being able to choose your clients, choose when you work, that's highly desirable to people. I mean, even something like being an Uber driver, right? Like, that's not the most lucrative thing in the world. But the people who do it love that there's not a set schedule. You you can, you can make it work to fit your life. And the same, of course, is true for, you know, more high level um knowledge worker type positions i think the other reason perhaps the even more driving uh reason well let's see there's two there's two more driving reasons one is that it is cheaper for companies to uh to have contract employees, right? If you have a if you have somebody who's on a 1099, uh, you don't have to pay their health insurance. Like what you know, what company uh, with with the rising costs of health insurance, companies don't really want to be doing that anymore, and so they are incented to have more people as uh, as contractors or you know as as can, you know brought in as consultants and this has not been finalized you know as we're having this conversation they're still in the reconciliation process um, but uh, but you know whatever it is uh, you know the House and Senate have have now currently passed the Republican tax bill and uh, President Trump is you know going be signing it so um, so that's in process it's not hundred percent clear because they are still reconciling in two versions what precisely it's gonna look like but what seems to be the case is that the people who are going to be hit the hardest as the result of the tax bill are employees. Um, you actually, uh, it, it is it is thought, uh, at least on preliminary analysis, that people are going to be doing much better if they are um, if they are contractors or if they own their their own business as opposed to being a a typical wage earner. So, if the tax structure is incenting that behavior, that is going to definitely become more common at least in the u.s Mm -hmm. wow
2: so uh, one other question i I realize that i I should have asked you this earlier in our conversation but you work in our educational institutions as a lecturer so i have to you know ask you about what your perspective is on the current state of higher education and you know um, what the implications of that are for you know parents who are listening whose kids may be headed that direction soon
1: yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. I actually um, thought for a long time that as sort of a second career, what I might want to do is be a college president. Um, I'm not convinced that I, <laughs> I want to do that anymore. Uh, given the, the sort of paroxysms of, uh, of political correctness that, that have been con- convulsing campuses over the past couple of years. Um, I just, uh, I can't really cope with the all the microaggression-y kind of uh, persnicketyness that that seems to be uh, taking over. Uh, so I uh, so I may not end up doing it, but I but I have been a very close observer of colleges and, and campus politics for a long time. And anyway, I I am fascinated by the implications of uh, of technology and, and just the the, the change that is coming. Um, I think that for me, the clearest prediction is, um, it's actually very similar to what I think is going to happen in the overall economy as well, which is that the, the, the winners, um, you know, meaning the the most prestigious institutions, the people with the biggest brand, um, you know, the Ivy leagues or the, the Ivy league analogs are going to be fine because they're always fine. They there is, there is never going to not be a reason that you shouldn't go to Harvard or Stanford or, or what have you, uh, because it will be a great education and it will be the most powerful brand behind you and the most powerful networking opportunity that you can possibly have. Um, I think that there are going to be plenty of people as well who are wanting to use the... Um, I say the low end, I don't mean low in terms of quality, but I mean low end in terms of pricing, Um, community colleges, uh, state, state colleges. I think that that's going to remain valuable for a lot of people um, who do want to get professional skills. I think that where we're really going to see a lot of change and disruption is in the middle, uh, because there has been over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, just such a mantra of, you know, oh, all you need is a college degree. A college degree is so important, blah, blah, blah. And so people have been paying a lot of money for, frankly, some really shitty degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been overpaying for mediocre schools. And I think that where we're going to see some major disruption is uh, private Private institutions that are, especially those that are expensive, that don't have a solid brand. You know, why would you pay that much money for a diploma that that doesn't uh, that doesn't impress people? <laughs> you know, th- this is where distance education and uh, e-learning can really become a viable alternative. I, I think that you know pe- people are going to want degrees they're going to want diplomas they're going to want education um, but if if they're not going to an Ivy League school, then they then I think the next best choice is to have an education that is low cost and and high quality and I think more and more places will be doing that and attempting to do that through e-learning.
2: Well, this has been really fascinating um, and very eye-opening. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think what makes someone or something unmistakable is that they are so true to themselves that they are leaving a signature there's a signature element and you know sometimes you know for a for a singer let's say you know you you might not have heard the song but you know their voice or you know that style and the minute it comes on the radio you just oh well clearly that's a new song by you know whatever artist it is and I think a a goal that I have and a goal that, you know, perhaps perhaps all of us should have is to to not have any daylight between who we are and how we can convey ourselves to the world Um, where it is uh, it's it's just a, a clean line of transmission so that when people see us. In the world, when they see um, something we've written or something that we've said or how we've interacted with a the person, they just say, "Yep, exactly. That that is that is quintessential Dory. <laughs> that is quintessential uh, Srini. And that that we we become known as exactly the kind of people that we are and that we want to be." Mm.
2: Well. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Um, Where can people learn more about you and your work and uh, the new book?
1: Thank you. I I appreciate it. So my new book is Entrepreneurial You, and for folks who are interested in that, or um, I've Done more than we were talking about this earlier. I've done more than 500 uh, free articles over the past uh, few years, and uh, you know, and, and they've they've gotten much better since I first started. So uh, so maybe don't don't start at the bottom, you know, in 2009. Start start at the top. I, I think they're pretty good now. Uh, but more than 500 free articles for places like Forbes and the Harvard Business Review and things like that, and you can you can access all of them for free at my website, which is doryclark.com. D o r i e c l.
5: at least that's good the UPS store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time
3: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend